Welcome to Victorian Samplings. I'm Vanessa Warren. In this episode, we explore Victorian vocal music and the role of song in community building, creative expression, education, and resistance. We'll hear from Anne Hung, who shares a conversation between Heather Markovich and Frederick Roden about the 19th century history of Jewish hymns. And I'll bring you my interview with Elisa Klappetnayer about the song sung by Victorian children. We turn first to Jesse Cron. Jesse had the chance to speak with Diana Moltz, who in fall 2020 organized Singing from the Margins, an exploration of Victorian hymn traditions that has provided content and inspiration for this episode. Diana explores the history of the Fisk Jubilee Singers, a choral ensemble founded in 1871 whose continued success is a measure of the power of music. Join us as we take up the songs of an earlier era and explore both their resonance and their relevance. Hello, I'm Jessie Cron, and I'm joined today by Dr. Diana Maltz of Southern Oregon University's English program. Thanks for joining me today, Diana. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, at a Crafting Communities Roundtable in October, you were part of a panel on Victorian hymns. What inspired that? That's a really great question. At the time that we were planning the panel, we had all begun lockdown under COVID, and there was this strong longing for community. And Heather Markovich and I were talking about hymns as a kind of symbol for how people found each other during the Victorian age and how they sought comfort and solidarity by singing together. And if you've ever sung with people, you know that there is a thrill, especially in singing harmonies together. So we began thinking about hymns as a kind of conduit for talking about community and comfort. There's one other thing that, that I would say, was that, which is that we wanted the hymns in our panel to be, as we said, from the margins. So we chose communities that were not Anglican or even Methodist, but ethical society culture, uh, Jewish hymns, hymns from advocacy communities like animal rights advocates. And we wanted to talk about how those hymns consolidated community. You presented on the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Can you tell us about that? The Fisk Jubilee Singers were 11 students from the Fisk School that would later be known as Fisk University who were touring Britain and Europe in order to raise money for their school. The school was in financial straits. Um, they were African-American students. Out of the 11 of them, nine of them had been born into slavery and they had witnessed the um, emancipation in 1865. And so in 1873, they went to England and later on to Germany and the Netherlands singing African-American spirituals, and they became a kind of sensation. They performed in front of Queen Victoria. They were um, lauded in the press. And then when they went back in 1875, they toured for three years. Um, it was a grueling schedule. They had toured in America, actually following the route of the Underground Railroad, but it was not a lucrative experience for them. And they underwent a lot of hardships. They were denied proper lodging. They had difficulty even getting access to proper uh, transportation. In England, they were welcomed and it was a, it was a very different experience. Um, and they did actually earn quite a lot of money on their tours. You've broached the topic of marginalized communities' relationships with hymns, but could you share why you felt inspired to research the Fisk Jubilee singers specifically? So what I will say is that I had initially planned on working more in my own comfort zone. I was going to talk about socialist labor hymns 
because I work largely on people like Edward Carpenter and William Morris in the 1880s. And then um, something really profound happened, which were the George Floyd marches this summer following the murder of George Floyd um, by police brutality. And those marches in June of 2020 were international. They happened all across Europe and they happened in England as well. And they made a really big impact. I remember watching the toppling of Edward Colston's statue in Bristol. And Colston had been a slave trader in England in the 1700s. And for many years, the residents of Bristol wanted his statue taken down. And they kept meeting with obstacles. The city council was sort of dragging its feet. And it was during the George Floyd march that they toppled the statue, dragged it into the harbor, and um, pushed it into the water. And that image is iconic now. The George Floyd marches also forced or impelled those of us who in Victorian studies to really reconsider our syllabi. And we began talking in lots of um, meetings and conferences online about decentering our work and thinking more and more about race. And that would mean rethinking our pedagogy. To make a long story short, I changed my topic. And the answer for me was to work transatlantically. I wanted to look at British attitudes to American slavery, and I wanted to theorize what it meant for their own attitudes towards and, and their mental defenses against recognizing the earlier British slave-holding uh, past. So I wanted to work on issues of memory, and I really wanted to sort of see the Fisk Jubilee Singers as a catalyst for getting um, British people in the 1870s to think about race. Now, as you've gracefully moved us across the Atlantic, for listeners who may be less familiar with Britain's role in the slave trade, could you provide some dates to create a general timeline of British slave ownership and when it ended? For our purposes, there are three dates that I would mention. The first one is 1807, and that's the Slave Trade Act. And what that did was it ended the movement of ships carrying slaves from Africa to the Caribbean. In 1833, we see the formal emancipation of British slaves that's the Slavery Abolition Act. It doesn't really come into effect until 1834, but at that point, the slaves are emancipated. In 1837, there's a really important act called the Slave Compensation Act. The only way that the British government was able to free the slaves in the Caribbean was by compensating slave owners. And there has been quite a lot of really excellent work that's been done on that. There's a website called Legacies of British Slave Ownership out of University College London, which um, was founded by Catherine Hall and Nick Draper um, out of UCL. And it's a remarkable uh, effort. What you can do is type in the last names, the surnames, and pull up the records of British slave owners, including how many slaves they owned and what they were compensated. For someone like me who works on the 1880s and 90s, I began thinking about race and thinking about British slave ownership by thinking about the elite wealthy people that I work on who were art collectors and patrons of the arts. And I was typing their surnames in because as I suspected, a lot of them became wealthy through the Slave Compensation Act that enriched their grandparents or their parents. And this money um, was inherited across generations and enabled them to live very aristocratic lives. So when I think about British people listening to the Fisk Jubilee Singers in 1873, I'm really interested in the ways that they may be trying not to make a connection. In other words, 
trying to disavow their own inheritance, their own status as indirect beneficiaries of slavery. I'm interested in the way that wealthy British people, or the British press specifically, might have responded to the Fisk Jubilee Singers. As you've mentioned, they might have had a vested interest in not making the connections that you're making. I also imagine that they wouldn't have been as accustomed to hearing the work of Black performers. I mean, the really interesting thing about the press is that they repeatedly compared the singers to minstrelsy. Um, even though minstrel acts were usually performed by white singers and blackface, and even though the songs themselves in minstrelsy were a different genre altogether. I have a theory that journalists referred to minstrelsy because it was their only frame of reference for um, Black ensemble performers, and they needed something, they reached for something to be a context, a way of declaring their authority as critics. I think there's another layer to this, which is that um, minstrelsy had very familiar archetypes and tropes and um, dialect. It framed slavery as identifiably something from the American South and sort of exotic for that. It may have helped erase historical memory of earlier British slave ownership, which had always been out of view of British citizens, including slave owners, because many of those had not traveled to the Caribbean. So there is a way in which using minstrelsy as a comparison was actually a tool for distancing the experience of slavery from the British Caribbean and actually from British slaveholders as well. What can the Fisk Jubilee Singers experience in particular teach us about Victorian attitudes towards their own slave-owning past? Yeah, it's a really difficult question. Um, we all play mental gymnastics, and it's possible that in the 1870s, which was at this point about 40 years after the emancipation of British slaves, you see a, a kind of effort not to see. It's an effort to see slavery as something that is wholly U.S. American and to abstract and deny the history of British slave ownership. You mentioned that Queen Victoria heard the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Could you expand on the subject of famous figures that might have listened to the singers? When they arrived in England, they were taken under the wing of the Duke of Argyll, who had been a very famous abolitionist. And in many ways, he protected them from the harshness of some of the experiences that they had had touring in America. He um, put them up in his home in London, which had its own private garden. They had some leisure and some fresh air and comfort that they had not had before. And it was at his house, kind of by accident, Queen Victoria visited on the day that they were performing, the day they were singing. And because she was there and because she uh, admired their performance, that opened the door for them. And that was basically the gateway to European fame, because from there they would perform for other royal families. She requested that they sing a song, Steal Away, and they obliged. There are other records. Uh, one of Queen Victoria's daughters was royalty in Germany, and she heard them, and she um, wept on hearing them. We have a lot of records like that. You've mentioned a resource that listeners can look into if they want to research British involvement in the slave trade. What resources are there for somebody who might want to research the Fisk Jubilee Singers? Oh, definitely. The really, really big book that came out in 2001 is called Dark Midnight When I Rise. And it's a history by Andrew Ward, an American historian. I also want to recommend there's a television program in America called The American Experience through public broadcasting. And they did a wonderful episode on the Fisk Jubilee Singers in 2019, really recently. One of the things that I love about Andrew Ward's book and also this TV show is that they use the words of the actual Fisk Jubilee Singers 
including women. Um, one of them, Ella Shepard, was a pianist, an organist, a soprano, and an arranger. So they're able to use her own memories, her recorded uh, insights into what the tours were like under the direction of George Leonard White, their choir director. Steal Away is part of their, their collection of songs that they sang regularly, including other, ter- other, other songs like Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel. The great thing about Steal Away is that it operates on a double entendre. It has that Steal Away to Jesus, which seems to be about dying and seeking some sort of eternal rest. But the connotation of steal away, it feels like being quiet and secretive. And it seems to evoke the the flight to freedom on the Underground Railroad. You can steal away to heaven, but also you can steal away to the North beyond the Confederacy. And I think about this in the context of the students for whom slavery was not a really distant memory. When they were planting a garden on the campus grounds, Fisk students, had dug up a pile of manacles and chains from what had been at one point former slave auction site, and they sold those as scrap iron to pay for books. Steal Away is a really haunting song because it's about seeking rest, but really it seems to also be about seeking freedom. It may be one of those songs that British audiences found haunting, provocative. Above all, it's very, very beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Diana. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Let's listen to Diana's recommendation. This recording comes from the Fisk Jubilee Singers YouTube channel. While this particular recording was initially released in the 1980s, it was remastered in 2009. Many more recordings from the singers are available on their website, where you can find out more information about both their history and their ongoing work. We're joined now by Dr. Elisa Klappetnayer. Elisa teaches and researches at Indiana University East in Richmond, Indiana. And her most recent book is British Hymns for Children, 1800 to 1900, Retuning the History of Childhood. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk with you about a very interesting facet of Victorian era culture, namely children's music. The subtitle of your book, Retuning the History of Childhood, suggests that you have found in the history of music a prompt to think in new ways about the lives of Victorian children. Can you tell me about that? Thank you for noticing that. Of course, it is a pun since I actually explore tunes in the book, but I intended to also reconsider the common notion of 19th century childhood that children were supposed to be seen and not heard very restricted in what they could do and say, 
working-class children spending 14 hours a day in factories or mines. Upper and middle-class children restricted by polite society's expectations and protocol. All of this is true, of course, but I suggest elements of play, especially in music, that gave children a voice. Music literally surrounded children. Hymns and songs were taught in school, Sunday schools, the home, while children made up songs as a main part of their play. They could negotiate how they sang, maybe a bit rebelliously, what hymns they liked and to which tunes from large hymn book collections, even how they parodied the words for fun, all of which greatly empowered children, their intellect, and their voices. Elisa, you're interested in all sorts of songs composed for child voices in the Victorian era, in hymns, school songs, and songs that featured in children's play. One of the ways you've been exploring children's song is by directing choirs of young singers. Could I ask you to introduce us to a recording of one of those choirs performing a Victorian era piece? Sure. I thought I would play for you their recording of a popular hymn called There is a Happy Land, written in 1843 by Andrew Young. Some of your listeners may recognize it as a missionary hymn, briefly appearing in Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I. But it was written by Young for a Sunday school in Scotland and was extremely popular in hymn books for children, the sixth most frequently appearing in 38% of children's hymn books according to my tally of 100 hymn books. It was also adapted into a temperance song, There is a Happy Time When Temperance Truth Shall Shine, Bright, Bright as Day, which we also recorded. There is a story, possibly apocryphal, that Thackeray heard children singing Happy Land in the streets of London and broke into tears. It is about heaven, but with such an upbeat tune, you can see why children would enjoy it, not even thinking about heaven. This is sung by contemporary children in two-part harmony. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I love the story about Thackeray, however apocryphal it might be. I know that's just one of many recordings that you created for your Sounding Childhood project. The Sounding Childhood website, which we'll link to from our site, houses those recordings, as well as, I would note, a rich archive of sheet music and some fascinating context and analysis. And I'll just add that it also features some lovely photographs of your performers in period costume. Yes, they love that part of the camps, and the local civic theater now loans me costumes for our photo shoots. They're just lovely. I'm interested in how working with children shapes your understanding and perhaps also your appreciation of 19th century music. I actually wanted to give credit to the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, whose 2014 conference participants gave me the idea to create a website that would showcase some of the hymns and songs I was researching. Phyllis Welliver at St. Louis University invited me to join her Sounding Victorian project, which attempts to recreate Victorian song performances, a few years later. I'm grateful to IU East, who has fin financially supported 
and its music director, Dr. Jessica Raposo, who co-leads annual camps since 2015. For each camp, we audition local children and focus on a particular musical genre, hymns, school songs, and the latest Band of Mercy songs. You are right. Working with children of today, I am reminded of their energy, enthusiasm, and even zaniness when singing. They're also very fast learners. They learn 12 to 16 songs in only a week. So it reminds me that if children of today can love this music of an earlier era, certainly 19th century children must have found it very engaging. That's very, very useful to think about. We're exploring the history of hymns in other segments of this episode, and I gather your work on children's hymn singing introduced you to the Bands of Mercy. Can you tell us about Bands of Mercy, perhaps starting with the first Band of Mercy? Yes, it was an odd discovery, a subtitle to a hymn book at Cambridge University, and also hymns for Bands of Hope and Bands of Mercy. I had to research what they were. Bands of Hope came first, established in 1847 in England to bring children into the temperance movement. Catherine Smythes established Bands of Mercy in 1875 in the same vein to support the growing animal rights movement. Bands were local groups of children meeting once a week in homes, kind of like girl or boy scouts of today, to learn songs and stories about the kind treatment of animals, then take the messages home and out into the larger community, a sort of political use of children's music. I discuss both bands in my book, but have been publishing articles on the Bands of Mercy since then, because they are less known, and because I discovered issues of their journal, The Advocate, at the British Library. And if there were hundreds of bands in England by the end of the century, there were thousands in America. In fact, a band was established in 1888 in my own community of Richmond, Indiana. So we revived it in 2019 to record some of these songs. I love that connection to your location, your present-day location. Alisa, I was wondering if you could read a few verses and share your thoughts. This is one of my favorite songs from American Sarah Eddy's songbook, Songs of Happy Life for Schools, Homes, and Bands of Mercy, 1897. It's called Voice of the Helpless. It is very hard-hitting, addressing the Victorian and Edwardian women's fashion of decorating hats and coats with the bodies and wings of birds. Everglades egrets were almost extinguished because of the, this cultural phenomenon. Both the RSPCA and ASPCA addressed women and young girls to help them see that their wardrobe choices were decimating bird populations. This is what this song, words by Carlotta Perry, and music by L.B. Marshall does. I asked my then 12-year-old daughter to sing it and recorded it at her voice lesson. The last verse which she will sing reads, That little dead bird on your bonnet, is it worth a cruel wrong? The beauty you wear so proudly there is the price of a silenced song. The hummingbird on your velvet dress mocks your womanly tenderness. I know that this particular song must have been too aggressive against a lucrative trade because it was deleted from the next edition of this songbook.
Alisa, it has been a pleasure to speak with you and to hear these wonderful performances by your sounding childhood singers. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me, Vanessa. Let's end this exploration of the songs sung by Victorian era children with a final piece suggested to us by Elisa. I'll let her introduce it. Since I used a hymn and a band of mercy song, I thought it would be appropriate to end with a song from my 2017 camp focused on school and play songs. This came from a songbook I found at IU Bloomington's Lily Library, Elizabeth Ball Collection, William Boyd's 1870 music set to Lewis Carroll's playful parodies in Alice in Wonderland. Please enjoy the kids' choir singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Bat, which is a parody, of course, of another children's song favorite, Anne and Jane Taylor's Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, both found on my website. Elisa Clappett-Nyer is a professor of English at Indiana University East and the creator of the Sounding Childhood Project, which you can find at www.soundingchildhood.org. She spoke with me from her home in Richmond, Indiana. We turn now to Anne Hung, who brings us a conversation on 19th century Jewish hymns. joined by Dr. Frederick Roden, a professor at the University of Connecticut, and Dr. Heather Markovich, a professor at Red Deer College. Fred is the author of Recovering Jewishness, Modern Identities Reclaimed, and Heather is engaged in the ongoing project titled The Yellow Book, Writing, Editing, and Cosmopolitanism. Both Heather and Fred have been exploring the Victorian-era history of Jewish hymns. I'd like to begin by asking, what inspired each of you to begin studying Jewish hymns? Sure. Um, Well, I'm Jewish, and that was a really good place to start. And because, obviously, that I'm Jewish in my childhood, I was exposed to a number of Jewish hymns and congregational singing in school and in synagogue. And I guess what happens is when you learn something often enough as a child, it becomes easier to recognize in other formats that nearly you wouldn't actually look for it. And I've noticed that often, especially in terms of religious or quasi-religious expressions, the model for interpretation is a Christian model, even if other faiths are in play. So what I liked about studying Jewish hymns is that it was a way, sort of an opportunity to kind of restructure the model and sort of decenter Christianity from hymns so that other faiths like Jewish hymns don't necessarily play a minority or marginal role in it, but can be taken on their own terms. 
Um, it's interesting. I, I guess my journey is more complementary rather than parallel here in the sense that as a scholar of religion and literature, religion and culture, for me, the genre of the hymn, it's really vernacular poetry. Hymns are the poetry that everyone in the 19th century recited and recited regularly as part of a public communal act. And vernacular is kind of the key word here because for me, studying the hymn in the 19th century started with considering the more familiar Christian hymns of the period. But in the Jewish context, it's something a little bit different. And I bring this up because in the 19th century, we have music and lyric composed for the Jewish worship service that is in the language of the country. And we have the musical style to be that much closer to what we would think of as Protestant hymnody. So I'm very interested in these questions of Jewish difference and how that fits into the Jewish acculturation into uh, Western culture following Jewish emancipation, we might say. Your paths into this subject seem, as you said, Fred, quite complementary, and the crossover that your research has in the 19th century is also really fascinating. Heather's work with hymns came to focus on Felix Adler and the Ethical Culture Society, while Fred worked closely with these hymns in relation to Reform Judaism. It seems that each of you has studied the relationship between particular Jewish hymns and larger cultural movements in the 19th century. Heather, how did hymns come to factor into your research on Victorian culture? I came across these hymns by accident, to be honest with you. I wasn't really looking for them. I've been doing this ongoing research on the Yellow Book and was looking at um, Henry Harland, the editor. What struck me when I'm reading the hymn is that he was Felix Adler's protege, and that got me looking at Adler himself. I, you know, previously did not know that Adler had written hymns. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting. And when I started looking at the lyrics more closely, I said, you know, there is a lot of, there's a lot of Jewish reference in here. He references the Talmud. He references Psalms. He references Jewish obligations like charity, staka, and tikkun olam, sort of that idea of, you know, doing good for the world. And the fact that, you know, even though Adler's biographers are really strict at saying he, you know, he basically rejected Judaism, he spent one day doing services at the Temple Emmanuel and left. But one of the things that, um, you know, I also saw is that he didn't completely abandon it, even though he sort of repackaged it under this kind of secular humanism. You know, in a sense, he is representing a large number of people who practice Judaism, you know, people who weren't Orthodox, but certainly weren't quite assimilated, that were looking for a way to sort of reconcile some of their Jewish beliefs with a broader, kind of a broader sort of, you know, in this case, American religion, the one that fostered, you know, the melting pot, as we all know, which was conceived of by 
a Jewish writer also, you know, in the way of sort of fitting in and blending in. So I thought, you know, this is, you know, even though this was a very unusual journey to get there, I thought, you know, this is extremely interesting. Here is a man who on the surface says, I disavow any organized religion. I will not follow in my father's footsteps as a rabbi. Yet I am still going to be writing hymns specifically for ethical culture services that owe probably more to Judaism than to any other religion, including sort of that secular Christianity that is part of sort of, again, the kind of fabric of everyday American life. And Fred, I believe you found similar connections between shifts in Jewish hymns and shifts in Victorian culture. Could you expand on that? Yes, and... uh... Very much a connection in the reference to the melting pot. The hymn that uh, I have focused on is the translation into English of a medieval liturgical poem. The writer of the lyrics, Israel Zangwell, is of course the author of the melting pot. And this particular hymn, All the World or All the World Shall Come to Serve Thee, it professes this kind of universalism that subversively transfers the centrality of the God of Christianity to the God of Judaism. The Abrahamic faiths kind of uh, do a reversal here insofar as 19th century Jews who are singing these hymns in the Western style, in the language of the country that they call to be their home, are proclaiming uh, Judaism as the origin site for the so-called Judeo-Christian ethics. And this is important given the separation and given the ways in which remaining Jewish amongst one's Christian neighbors was a statement of belonging yet outsiderness. It's a it's a very subversive gesture in a culture where Judaism, Jews, and Jewish culture is very much seen as counter to Western Christian civilization. So just to think a little bit more about um, the work of the hymns, I find some of the most interesting material in the Jewish hymnals to be translations. I have a, a particular favorite in a uh, adaptation for a psalm, Psalm 51, which would be used for, not as it's called in the hymnal Yom Kippur, but Day of Atonement and Penitence. Uh, So notice the particular Victorian English. So Psalm 51 is set to music in this uh, deeply lyrical uh, poetry. Create in this weak form of mine a true and trustful heart that from thy holy laws, O Lord, I never may depart. Grant me, O Lord, a spirit pure to dwell for I in me, that I may seek through all my life sweet joys that come from thee. This is about as far as you can get away from the long groaning day of fast that is associated with Yom Kippur. There's there's something precious, and by that I mean excessively exquisite in terms of this almost cloying Victorian language set to music. I like the fact that what's complimentary about this is that when Felix Adler comes and decides he's going to start looking at hymns. He doesn't retranslate hymns, but he's looking at his influence, the smaller hymns, the ones that aren't talking about God's might and God's eternity, very much matches the idea that there are these kind of dual um, strains 
in Judaism, one that is mystical, one that talks about God's grandeur, that one that talks about his all-encompassing nature, and the other one that's focused on the day-to-day living, on literally on the ethics, on the practicing of, of behavior, on the fact that, you know, Judaism is a religion of action more than it is a profession of faith. There truly is a wealth of information to gather from exploring these hymns. To close, what research advice could you give to folks who hope to study or simply learn more about Jewish hymns? Well, I guess I I would say the best place to start would be any Jewish house of worship that's been in, in existence long enough because they're going to complain to you that they don't know what to do with all of these old hymnals that that uh, people stopped using over 50 years ago in many cases. And so indeed for folks who are interested, there are a fair amount of primary materials and printed materials available in your local towns and cities. So look, look local uh, when you're interested in finding out more about this. And don't be afraid to uh, check online as well because uh, the uh, uh, Milken Archive of Jewish Music online is terrific. I'd like to also make a plug for an organization that I'm affiliated with, um, Roots of Reform Judaism, formerly known as the Society for Classical Reform Judaism. That organization's website is renewreform.org. And there are lots of folks who are affiliated with that organization who are committed to the preservation of the 19th century heritage of, of liberal Judaism in the West. In addition to what Fred said, where, yes, the houses of worship are the best place, probably second is a well-stocked Jewish household (laughs) that at the very least would have the Passover Haggadah, the hymnal slash prayer book that we use every Passover that has a lot of the hymns that have become standard. There's a great website for an online database of the Jewish Music Research Center that has a treasure trove of hymns and really wonderful work there. And that's, honestly, that that would be another place I would look to. It's also interesting to look at sort of uh, variorum editions because um, a lot of, you can sometimes see Jewish hymns being sort of rewritten for Christian hymn books. It will often be uh, cited, you know, from a Jewish spiritual or from a Jewish hymn. And it's also very interesting to sort of keep your eyes open, you know, even in, let's say, the Protestant denominations, where you might have, you know, you might have some examples here and there. Thank you both so much for that advice and for sharing your research with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Dr. Frederick Rodin and Dr. Heather Markovich. I will leave you with this sample of All the World, performed by Fred on the piano. Thank you to Frederick Rodin for kindly playing and recording that piece for us. And thank you to all the guests who contributed to this episode. To learn more about the topics explored by Diana Maltz, Elisa Klappetnayer, Heather Markovich, and Frederick Rodin, please visit the Crafting Communities website, craftingcommunities.net. 
You'll find links on our episode page to suggested readings and resources, as well as some images of the feathered fashions compellingly critiqued by the child performers of The Voice of the Helpless. Thanks go to Jesse Cron and to Anne Hung for their work on this episode. Thank you also to Natalie Lovetri for the transcript and to Madison George Burlett for her digital media work. Anne and Madison contributed to this podcast from Victoria, British Columbia, unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, traditional land of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples. Jesse, Natalie, and I worked on this episode in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. We welcome your feedback. Email us at crafting at uvic.ca and follow us on Twitter at Crafty Victorian. We look forward to sharing a new episode of Victorian Samplings with you soon. Mm-hmm.